1: In every book of the Bible that you might conceivably cover in a format like this, there's going to be at least one chapter that makes you nervous. In 1 Corinthians, there are three chapters or maybe four that would make you nervous. There's chapter 11, 12, and 14, and then probably nowadays chapter 6 as well. Well, here in Revelation, it's chapter 20. This is the chapter where good people part ways, interpretively speaking. Now, I actually don't think that there's anything in this chapter that would rise to the level of a fellowship issue. Meaning, I I don't think that if you disagree on the nature and timing of the millennium that you should be put out of your church or subjected to discipline. Now, of course, there are some errors that should be fellowship issues, and I'm sure we'll get to some of those sooner or later, but other issues are just places where good Christians wrestling with the text are going to see different things. And and there's a sense in which we should not be surprised by that. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see through a glass darkly. We don't have perfect insight into all things at this point in human history. And so we have to be charitable where there is legitimate grounds for some confusion. Now, by legitimate confusion, I, I mean that there are a few passages where the rule of Scripture does not give us enough counsel to be certain in our interpretations. Now, that isn't the case with the vast majority of passages in the Bible. On on most passages, you, you can get lots of help from parallel passages such that there really is no reasonable doubt as to what the text is saying. In such cases, feigned confusion... And pretended ambiguity is, more often than not, a cover for rebellion and disobedience. But we're not talking about that today. Today we're talking about one of the handful of passages with which there are very few parallels and therefore which permit a variety of interpretive options. There, there really are a couple of legitimate ways of looking at this passage. Now, of course, all I can do is tell you what I see. In In 15 minutes, I can't tell you about every nuance in every theological system. I can't tell you every interpretive option for every contested phrase. I can just tell you what I see. And I can tell you that it isn't what I saw 10 years ago. And it isn't what I was taught as a child. But I think that's okay. I, I think that As we wrestle with texts over a lifetime, we should expect increased illumination. And I pray that is the case here, and I pray that my thoughts and insights will be useful to you as you continue to wrestle with this passage. All right, without any further ado, let's get into the text. This chapter concludes the sixth vision sequence in the book of Revelation. It began back in chapter 17, verse 1, and it concludes here at the end of chapter 20. It shows the complete and final triumph of Christ over all his enemies. We saw first the triumph over the whore, uh, the whore of Babylon. Then we saw his triumph over the beast, the false prophet, and all their followers. And then today, in this chapter, we see the final defeat of the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Let's begin reading at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, obviously, this is symbolic language. The devil's a spirit, and therefore, a literal chain wouldn't do much good against him. No, this, is, this clearly represents a restriction on his operating authority. The devil's a dog in a chain, and it appears in this vision that his chain has been severely shortened. Now, earlier on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, we saw the devil thrown down from heaven to earth. Do you remember that? Well, here we see him thrown down from earth to the bottom of the abyss. Clearly, then, this represents a further reduction in his operative authority. Now, maybe it would be helpful to go back and remember what we read and saw in Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at that again. Revelation 12, 7 and 9 says... All right, now we agreed then that this passage seems to sound a lot like Luke 10, 18. After the disciples got back from a preaching tour, they told Jesus about how so many people had responded to the gospel and had been set free from their bondage. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So in that passage, it seems to be very clear that the devil is thrown down from heaven to the earth as the gospel of grace and power and spirit and truth begins to spread through the world by the preaching of the disciples. The shining of the light causes a reduction in the reach of darkness. So, to be very clear the reduction in the devil's operative authority in revelation chapter 12 begins when the light of the gospel begins to spread therefore i think we have to build on that when interpreting revelation 20. if revelation 20 is a further reduction in his operative authority ought we not to understand that as in some way related to the day of Pentecost and the subsequent and rapid and far-reaching spread of the gospel to all the nations of the earth? I can't escape that inclusion, uh, that that conclusion, and, th- and therefore I, th- I think you have to see this vision as again spanning the entire time frame between the two comings of, of Christ. In fact, I think you can stick a pin in it at Pentecost on the left-hand side of the frame, and then another pin at the Battle of Armageddon on the right-hand side of the frame. Okay, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's keep reading the text. Verse 2 goes on to say, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him 4,000 years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, if we are right in understanding the binding of Satan to refer to his diminished operative authority due to the Spirit's help in the spread of the gospel, then I think what we are seeing here in this verse is that near the end of that long season, we should expect a sudden and significant increase in demonic opposition. The devil's chain will shrink as the gospel goes forth to all the earth, and then suddenly it will increase. And the people of God will face a massive spike in demonic opposition. I think we've got that right. It sounds very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 24:14. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, right? So in Matthew 24, Jesus says, expect increase and then the end right? There's going to be some increase. There's going to be some opportunity in advance. And then he says, then we're going to get into the stuff associated with the end. So I, I think we've got that right. Verse four goes on to say, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead Just about every word in this chapter is disputed to some extent, and so it is here. Again, all I can tell you is what I see. What I see is the gathering of God's people in heaven out of a tribulation that stretches from the ascension of Christ to his return. I I, I think most commentators agree that the thousand years is in some sense a symbol for a long but definite period of time. It's not eternity. It's not forever. It's a long period of time, but it's not forever. During that time period, it appears that some folks are, are giving their testimony in a season of openness and opportunity, but you know, when the devil's chain is short, whereas others are giving their testimony during the season of opposition when the devil's chain is longer. But all who are faithful are gathered up into heaven. I think that's what John means when he says they came to life leon morris says in his commentary this is not the usual word for resurrection it appears to mean that the martyrs though slain in ignominy live on in heaven with christ so do you see that they they're slain in ignominy they 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 die Uh, They're shamed, they're persecuted, they're oppressed, they're marginalized, but they're faithful, and therefore they are raised to live with Christ. These people have a royal and priestly future and need not fear the final judgment. They're dead, but they're with Christ. I I think that's what that means. Verse 7, it says, And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, this passage seems to me to line up very well with other passages we've seen already describing the final battle the Battle of Armageddon. It sounds for all the world like Revelation 16, 12 to 16. Again, if you go back there, even if you just flip in your pages now, you'll see we have demonic forces gathering nations for a battle against God's people, which ends in total destruction. It sounds for all the world like Zechariah 14, 2 to 16. And it sounds like Revelation 19, 11 and following. This is the last battle. Remember, the devil wants only to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't think he's going to beat God. He's just trying to get as many of God's people into the meat grinder. That's that's what he wants to do. The devil hates human beings. And so he's gathering them, not because he thinks he's going to win. He's gathering them to get them killed. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I think we're seeing that same theme in all the passages that we've looked at verse 10 here in revelation 20 goes on to say and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever so this this would line up with what we read yesterday in revelation 19:20 right where the 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 destruction of the of the beast and the false prophet were described and they were thrown into the lake of fire So again, I think you can stick a pin through these transparency slides and and line them up here on the right-hand side of the frame. Wherever you you think this vision begins on the left-hand side of the frame, it clearly ends here for the devil. Thus ends his reign of terror over the people of God. He is thrown down finally and utterly. Thanks be to God. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Now, this is clearly a picture of the final judgment. We've passed through the controversial parts of the passage. From here on in, there's general agreement. Verse 10, uh, from verse 10, goes on to say, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, we need to pause here for a second. Sometimes Christians are surprised when they read that that people are going to be judged on the basis of their works, right? I mean, isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? And the answer, of course, is yes, yes. But nevertheless we are judged, the Bible says, on the basis of our works. Now, in a sense, this lines up very well with what we see in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, we're told in Matthew 25 that the parable of the sheep and the goats is a parable of the final judgment. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne, his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a Shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All right, so that's clearly another way of describing the same events on the same day. And you will notice that on that day, Jesus judges the sheep and the goats. Now, they're already sheep or goats on that day, meaning they don't become sheep because of their good works. But their good works reveal under scrutiny and judgment that they are in fact sheep And likewise, the absence of those works proves that the goats are goats. So think of it like this. You become a sheep by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But sheep do sheepy things, and your judgment will deal in those things. Verse 14 goes on to say, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that is, the second death, the lake of fire. So the second death is the death of judgment and eternal exile. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now those are some of the most sobering words in scripture. As you hear those words, you may be asking the same question that the gathered crowd asked of Peter on the day of Pentecost. They were cut to the heart and they asked Peter what they should do. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I have no better advice to give than that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit.
0: once again that's into the word.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.